This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. Joining us today is Illinois House Republican leader Jim Durkin. Let's go ahead and get right to it. You bet. One year out from under Madigan's reign, has House Speaker Emanuel Chris Welch changed the way business is conducted at the State House? No, he hasn't. Last January, a year ago, then Speaker Welch proclaimed a new day in Springfield, in which he stated that the biggest issues of the day have to be resolved in a bipartisan manner. It didn't work out that way. The biggest issues of the day uh, were the issues regarding legislative redistricting. The Democrats drew the maps behind closed doors and held sham public hearings. No Republican participation in drawing the maps. No invitation to say, let's work this out. There was actually uh, no collaboration on the budget in which Republicans were shut out. And after we uh, saw that this terrible police reform bill, how it was put together in the last seconds of the lame duck session, we repeatedly talked about the flaws in the bill and uh, the inherent problems that are going along with it. And we're seeing crime at its worst level. Uh, The speaker turned his back on us. So I would say nothing, from my perspective, nothing's changed. This is the old school of running business in Springfield. You said that Republicans have been shut out on the budget process, on the remapping process. Let's first look at remapping. You bet. Representative Tim Butler was in a remapping hearing, and he said that the process hasn't been transparent and that the remapping has been flawed. Specifically, they were talking about the sub-circuit remap. What happened there? You know what? I think it goes back to, and we're still trying to figure out how they came about this. And those are the questions that we had asked. They went through a perfunctory hearing on this. And it, it, what, what amazes me is how the Democrats continue to stand up and say that this process has been transparent and the public's been involved. They're starting to believe their own BS. It's really awful. And that's the quality of representation you get from the Democrats in Springfield. But maps were drawn strictly for on the subcircuits, strictly for partisan political reasons. The Democrats who have this insatiable desire to control Illinois to their own will, like, Madig- like Mike Madigan did, they want to control the judiciary at every level. And they are now doing it by randomly, not randomly, they're picking select counties to rip up their judicial circuits without even confiding with the current judiciary in the uh, in those counties, nor with the Supreme Court of what the plan is and how this is going to resolve backlog issues. So one of my colleagues was very clear, and I think had some great questions about DuPage County. DuPage County is not complaining. There's not a backlog. They have a very efficient system. So what's the point of making these sub-circuits other than to ensure that there is going to be partisan, a partisan grab of the judiciary? So how they came about this and what they're, how they drew these sub-circuits, it's still a mystery to us. And even the, court, the chief administrator of the Illinois Supreme Court issued a memo this week and said that the redistricting plan, which I'm sure the governor is going to sign because he's part of the cabal, it makes no sense, it doesn't work, and it's a disaster in the, in the making. Democrats are saying that it's a move for helping with diversity in the courts. Do you think that that is valid? No. Look at the Circuit Court of Cook County. You know, our courts 
the fundamental principle of a court is to find an independent judiciary. And I don't believe that uh, minorities are underrepresented in the uh, in the judiciary. We so this is an easy way for them to back up their reasoning for what they're doing. But at the end of the day, this is about controlling the circuit court in different parts of the state and going into traditionally Republican areas that don't need a sub-circuits because, as I said earlier, what's the purpose of sub-circuits if you're not experiencing backlogging cases? But, you know, again, I'd like for them to be able to establish what the reasoning is, and they need to go beyond saying that this is about creating diversity. We need to create independence, good lawyers who know how to call balls and strikes as members of the judiciary, ones who are independent. This is a lopsided power grab by the Democrats in Springfield. If it wasn't, Republicans would have been in the negotiating uh, room with them. Uh, But the fact that they did this alone and their past patterns, this is clearly just for one reason, control the judiciary. Changing topics. Uh, Governor Pritzker has added more than $5 billion to the tax bill for Illinoisans through 24 increases during his term. Those increases include um, higher vehicle registration fees, parking hikes, new taxes on gambling, online shopping, cigarettes, marijuana. Is this bringing our state to a better fiscal place? Or because it's one-sided, and Republicans aren't getting a voice in these issues, is it really hurting us? Well, I think it's, you know, that state government's very complicated, but at the end of the day, you need to be able to have money that's going to match up with the spending. If Illinois citizens were able to see what the tangible results will be from a tax or a fee increase, they may understand it. But the governor, like any other Democrat that preceded him, believes that spending is more important than matching it up with revenues and making our budget balanced. It's about placating his interests in the that are in the far left who can't have enough money, but they believe that the more money that is thrown into the system, the better off they are. And that just doesn't fly with people, the you know, the middle class in Illinois. Let me just say this. The governor's plan on how he thinks he can fix Illinois was rejected a year ago in the fair tax by not just Republicans, but independents and Democrats. People saw that how he was went about this, and it would, turned out to be more of a, just of a shell game. But more importantly, it came down to trust. And Illinois citizens across the board said that we cannot trust J.B. Pritzker and the Democrats in Springfield with any more taxing authority upon their hard work and their wages that they do on a daily basis. You've had an insider look at the federal spending that's been done by the governors and with the recovery money that's been given to our state. Do you think that we'll be in better shape and that that money will actually go to the right people in the state? Well, you know what? It's hard to tell when we're not involved with the uh, budget negotiations. And, you know, they go back to the old playbook in which they drop a budget in the last seconds of a legislative session with maybe a half hour to for Republicans to be able to digest and raise at a committee, a committee hearing or on the floor. So, again, it's the governor and the Democrats feel that the state money, and whether it comes to the it flows through the federal government or it comes out of Illinois taxpayers, is their money, and they can decide what they want to do with it without any oversight. So the governor is going to go and tell everybody how great of a job he's done with the Illinois economy. But the fact is, 
He was lucky, like every other governor in the United States who received a huge bailout. Pritzker got a bailout. It had nothing to do with any economic policy that he has been promoting. So he's going to hold on to, right now he's holding on to a little less than $4 billion from the CARES Act, from the ARPA fund. And what he does with that, I'm not quite sure. But we have a $4.5 billion liability and hole in our unemployment trust fund. That is the safety network, the safety net for employees who are forced to be, uh, from their jobs, like what has happened over the past year. Employers had to let go of employees at a record level. Those employees are paid from the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, which is paid by the employees. Governor Pritzker is sitting on close to $4 billion. That money should go back to the employers. It should go to the trust fund to ensure that the employers are not going to have to be paying taxes to replenish the fund, nor will the employers have to cut benefits for those employees. So, Governor Pritzker, do the right thing with this money, and just remember that the first group of people that were hurt by your mandates were our small businesses in Illinois. And you should not be ignoring them right now when you have an opportunity to make them whole or to give them the first sign of life out of this administration that they that somebody actually cares about them. So, you know, it, it's the same old song and dance with the Democrats, but with this governor, he seems to be the governor for one party, and that's the Democrat Party and mainly the far left. He has forgotten the middle class, he's forgotten the independents, and he's forgotten the Republicans. So he is going to go down and uh, do what he does best, play partisan politics. And I presume that the the billions of dollars that he's sitting on, he's going to figure out a way to move that into the budget. And as I said earlier, I talked about the shell game that this administration uses when it comes to public funds and walk around the state and said that, you know what, I've balanced the budget again. But if he does, it's not because of anything as he, he's done. It's because of the federal taxpayer bailout that he received, like every other governor. What he should be doing is not only just helping out this trust fund, but go a little bit east. Look what happened in Indiana. They're rebating money back to the taxpayers in Indiana. We're not going to see that with him. Switching gears just a little bit, going back to Speaker Welch, he told WBEZ, I'm um, paraphrasing here, The Republican candidates all scare me, but I tell you, Governor Pritzker has done a heck of a job this year. What is your comments on that, and do you think that the GOP ticket is that scary? It's also been called the Rauner reboot because there's questions (laughs) that Ken Griffin is running the Republican Party now. Do you have any comments on that? There's a billionaire trust fund baby who's running the Democrat Party of Illinois that is throwing around millions of dollars to Chris Welsh. So I would expect that out of the speaker that that uh, expect him to make those those glowing comments about Governor Pritzker. He should go back and, and think about what Governor Pritzker and himself have done to the public safety of Illinois, what they've done to victims of Illinois over the past year and a half, what they've done to police. And if they are concerned about the safe streets and safe neighborhoods, uh, they should reexamine the position they've taken over the past past year and a half. And to me, our greatest responsibility as elected officials is to keep our people safe. The governor, Speaker Welch, they get an F for that. They have failed. They have failed Illinoisans. So as long as the, I would imagine, as long as Governor Pritzker 
sends those big checks to Speaker Welch, Speaker Welch will continue to sing praises of Governor Pritzker. Are you watching the GOP ticket? Are you happy with what it's becoming? And do you believe that Ken Griffin is running the party? I have no idea what Ken Griffin is doing. I am focused on, laser-focused, on finding candidates to run in the House of Representatives. We expect to have a good midterm election. We're, we're, we're doing a great job of finding diverse candidates all throughout the state of Illinois, the suburbs of Collar Counties, downstate, but now in the city of Chicago. In the past, it's been difficult to recruit candidates. Right now, we have lines waiting out of my campaign door for people who are anxious to be part of this process to say we got to stop this madness, what is happening with our finances, but even more importantly, stop the madness of what the Democrats have done to public safety in Illinois. So I'm focused on filling up as many seats as I can with good, solid Republicans. I'll let the gubernatorial candidates slug it out over the next few months and let the chips fall where they may. But I don't talk to Mr. Griffin. And last cycle, I ran uh, on a shoestring budget and beat Mike Madigan despite being outspent four to one. So uh, I'm prepared to go it alone. And uh, but I like my chances. We were talking about crime in the state. We have to look back at why people used to leave Illinois. A lot of the time you'd hear from people that they left because of high taxes. Now crime is forcing people out. City leaders are sparring with Kim Fox. How do you stop this vicious cycle, and how do you stop political leaders in the state from arguing with each other and not getting anything done? It's real simple. You beat them. The people who have turned their backs on, on victims, they've turned their backs on neighborhoods and uh, law-abiding citizens and police, you throw them out of office. That's the only way you can do that. I'm glad to see that in New York you have a, you have a mayor that takes public safety seriously. That's what happened. And that's why that, uh, the mayor won his primary, or won his election, that he was going to restore law and order to the streets of New York. That's the, how you're going to be able, only way you're going to be able to do this is that you're going to have to do it at the ballot box. And that's why Democrats throughout the state of Illinois, and also the Democrats in the city of Chicago, who I know are scared to death about what's happening in their neighborhoods, need to know that the Democrat legislators who are representing them, have turned their backs on the police that they expect to patrol the streets and have gone even further and have legislated in, uh, on how they are supposed to do their jobs to keep neighborhoods safe. That's outrageous. So, you know, the, the Democrats have a tin ear when it comes to these issues, but the fact is right now Illinois and mainly Chicago and some areas in the suburbs, there's utter lawlessness. And this is a creation of J.B. Pritzker, the Speaker, the President of the Senate, State's Attorney Fox, and the Chief Judge have created a, an environment which there are absolutely no consequences. It's a consequence-free state of Illinois for criminals and also street gangs. And that's why we are seeing carjackings, smashing grabs, and murders at the highest rates of all time. You have a State's Attorney who should... I believe that she should change the name on her office to the public defender of Cook County. And you have a group of Democrats who do not have the backs of the rank and file or any law enforcement officer in the state of Illinois. That is what has created this environment. I want to talk about what Republicans have been focused on this week, specifically with Director Mark Smith, right. the State Department of Children and Family Services Director in some big trouble and I think what we need to talk about is the bigger issue of this. If you look at the Veterans Affairs Office debacle that happened, it yes. really was a lack of 
kind of oversight and knowledge of these issues and it got to a boiling point. What yeah. do you think we should do beyond um, reprimanding Mark Smith and, you know, handling these two kids? Is it bigger than two children? Not just two kids. You have this young this little boy up in North Chicago who was killed by his family after multiple red flags had been raised with various people with DCFS. That was a house of horrors up in North Chicago. But DCFS dropped, I mean, I don't say dropped the ball, but they lost this child as they have lost other ones. And what has jumped out to me is that I look at the orders that came out of the circuit court, which held the director in contempt of court on those two cases regarding the young man and the young girl whose situations are beyond what anybody could ever imagine. They are so awful. But the director of the Department of Children and Family Services was held in contempt, which is a first, for continuing to violate specific court orders regarding the care and treatment of these two children. These two children have nowhere else to go. All they can rely upon is the state. And the director refuses, ignores court orders regarding their care and treatment that, to me, is outrageous, and I have asked the Speaker, the Chairman of a Human Services Committee, to immediately call for a public hearing for the Director to explain himself of how the Department and he got into this terrible situation of being held in contempt and how they're going to get out of it. And this is where Governor Pritzker, who's been strangely silent on the issue over the past week, needs to take control of this issue publicly. This is not a political issue. This is an agency that cares for the most vulnerable children within this state. So they cannot stick their heads in the sand anymore on this. And I just, I'm not asking for the director's head, but I want him to appear publicly and to explain how we got into this situation by being held in contempt of court. It's outrageous. It has never happened in my career. We will be hearing more on that issue, I'm sure. I agree. And I hope that the governor would govern on this issue and take responsibility. When you're governor of the state of Illinois, you have to take the good with the bad. But if you look at the track record of J.B. Pritzker, he only will take the good. When it came to the terrible situation at the LaSalle Veterans Home. He was dead silent, and so was his administration. And when now it comes to DCFS, we're almost a week into this alarming situation with the circuit court. He once again is silent. So he needs to step up and be a governor and govern. When it comes to the pandemic, I would say Illinois is in a real fatigue. Do you think that we need a new strategy beyond getting vaxxed and mandates? Look, I can't tell you that. I'll just say this. I am vaccinated. I've gotten a booster. I encourage people to take care of themselves and to take these vaccinations. However, the governor, again, uh, and I've said this repeatedly over the past year, believes that he can run the state without any type of uh, oversight or collaboration with the General Assembly. He has been ruling like an autocrat. And that is my biggest complaint over the governor and the way he's handled the pandemic. It's executive order after executive order, as opposed to appearing before the General Assembly, a co-equal branch in government, and explaining to us 
and giving us and backing up his explanations with data. Because when he issues an executive order, he has the full effect of law. And you are making decisions that are going to have a significant impact upon our employers, big and small, our employees, and also our parents, who are very, very outraged. And I think that they're the fatigue they have on the executive orders and how they are being told how to care for their children. I don't think the governor knows more about what's going on with a family than a parent. The parents should have control. They should have say. At very least, they should be able to speak before a committee of the General Assembly to talk about whether or not this is necessary, these mandates are necessary. This job in the General Assembly is about trying to fix problems, and we do it in an open, public, transparent process. But the governor has chosen to do the opposite. We will have to leave it there. Thank you for joining me today. You are listening to Illinois House Republican leader Jim Durkin on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. It's time for the Reporter Roundtable, where we welcome in Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Greg Hines with Crane's Chicago Business, Heather Sharon of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. The 2022 election season has officially kicked off this week. The Republican statewide offices are taking shape. Let's start there. Lynn? Well, what you have right now is a state party that is, or Republicans in the state are trying to find candidates. Why the Democrats have uh, have had their statewide office, they hold every statewide office holder and they're all running for re-election. So uh, their work was kind of done. You have... Uh, some Republican operatives who are working in collaboration with some big donors, including Ken Griffin, uh, who is one of the richest men in the world, uh, to recruit people to run for office. And what we've seen in the last few days is that they have uh, they have had candidates announce, not through a press conference, but through issuing statements or making it known publicly for Attorney General, Secretary of State, Treasurer, and wait, the fourth one was the Comptroller. Yes. So the big one we're waiting to see, and it could happen as soon as Monday, is whether or not Aurora Mayor Irvin declares for the governorship. And then we have to see how this so-called ticket really comes together. If indeed it's a package, some of the candidates already are working in tandem, and, and that's pretty clear. Uh, we'll see how it comes together and if it's a package. I want to point out one other thing that's notable. The Republicans don't have and don't seem to care anyone of note running against Tammy Duckworth for Senate. The Democrats, of course, have jumped on this, um, saying this is a rounder, as in Bruce Rauner reboot, and they are trying to uh, get their shots in hard and fast to try to deliver negative uh, thoughts in everybody's mind about this uh, crew that is uh, coming together. And, of course, they are easy to lump together, uh, uh, Griffin and Rauner, because they are both big bucks guys who think similarly on a lot of the matters. And Griffin had, for at least 
part of the administration around her uh, supported him. So it, it is one of those things that would be really uh, unusual to see just a big, big, big bucks coming in from one person who's trying to push through an entire ticket uh, versus uh, a governor who has unlimited resources, too, and has already uh, spent uh, nearly $300 million, uh, uh, running and uh, seeking a second term. Well, the Democrats are right that, that this is a run or reboot. I've, I've heard from people the last few days I haven't heard from for a very long time since Bruce Rauner was governor. But frankly, uh, uh, the party became absolutely dependent on one or two big bucks donors uh, uh, during the Rauner years. And it has been wandering in the desert of a Democratic blue state ever since. And they're better off that somebody pulls it together and assembles a, a decent ticket and maybe a good ticket uh, uh, than they were with, with absolutely nothing going on. So that's that's what's happening. Um, uh, there's some interesting people on the ticket. Uh, the, the selection of Mr. Irwin uh, that I hear indeed is coming on Monday is particularly interesting because in some ways he's as much a Democrat as he is a Republican. Um, he's going to have to make it through a Republican primary that uh, uh, in, this, in, a, in a party that has considerably changed. <clears throat> but nonetheless, for the first time in a while, somebody seems to have grabbed the bull by the horn, and it, it's, it's, it's Mr. Griffin and old rounder people, and tried to assemble a party that kind of works like a party's supposed to run the whole, whole ticket. I think they're better off, but we'll see how the ticket fares. Lynn, I wanted to ask you about Karen Norrington-Reeves. She's Congressman Bobby Rush's pick to replace him. The issue isn't so not a matter of surprise, but it is a matter of somebody who is a political newcomer. In a sense, she ran for alderman in 2007. So I think let me just set the stage for where we're at now. Uh, we have two candidates with considerable heft right now, uh, Alderman Pat Dow who, as soon as Bobby uh, announced he wasn't going to run again, switched from the Secretary of State race to the House race, vaulting from a long shot to a front runner because she had an organization in place. Karen Norrington Reeds, who runs a joint city and Cook County um, agency that distributes uh, federal job money, has a big running start with the Bobby Rush endorsement. I expect more people to get in. The field is still forming right now. Also, this is one of the most historic seats in Illinois because while districts and numbers have moved around through the years under remaps uh, sparked by every 10-year census, the first district has always been anchored at some place on the south side, and it is the home of generations of black elected officials and Bobby Rush talked about it in trying to trying to pass the baton to Karen Norrington Reed, who would fill the the footsteps of people spawned in the first Carol Mosley Braun, the first female senator, who by the way is endorsing Alderman Dow, Barack Obama, state senator, U.S. senator, president, uh, Oscar Dupree, Charlie Hayes, William Dawson, Rhett Metcalf, the Olympic star. These are all big figures in black political history. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. The field, still a work in progress. One of the latest uh, candidates or potential candidates is uh, State Senator Jackie Collins, who has been in in Springfield for uh, many years. And she has now talked about uh, putting her name on the ballot. But again, she's got to weigh whether or not she wants to take the chance that she could lose a race for Congress in a real 
what's shaping up to be a, a, a Donnybrook versus uh, keeping a relatively safe seat where she has uh, been elected by her uh, voters time and time again. So uh, one of the factors that's in this, as we've talked about before on this show, is that a lot of people are uh, facing the idea that all of the Senate, state Senate, and state House seats are up this time around. So some of the people who might be natural um, uh, candidates will not want to take the chance of losing their own seat in a a safe seat in the legislature and risk going for all the marbles in Congress. Moving on, I wanted to ask Greg Hines a question about his latest scoop um, is regards to Chicago City Clerk Anna Valencia, who's running for Secretary of State. Greg, you found through a FOIA request 600 emails in which she references her husband and the company for whom he has worked as a lobbyist, Chicago-based Monterey Security. Is there anything that you found in the emails that's worth uh, noting? Is there any meat on that bone? Well, we don't know yet. Um, I didn't find them. Uh, this is uh, this is some opposition research that was passed over to me by uh, the campaign of Lexi Genoius, who's uh, who's the, probably the front runner in the race. Uh, he and Valencia is the third candidate too, but he and Valencia are the, are the major competitors. Um, uh, he's been taking a lot of shots uh, over his connections to the collapsed Broadway Bank, which uh, was probably the reason why he did not beat Mark Kirk for a Senate seat a few years ago. Um, and his people decided to fight back. <clears throat> so they, they FOIA, they had somebody FOIA. <clears throat> um, Valencia's official email from uh, City of Chicago, his city clerk, <clears throat> to ask about emails involving her and her husband, uh, and uh, a security company that he's a registered lobbyist for. Now, that, now, there's been a lot of reporting about that company in the past. David Line had a pretty big story a few, a few years ago. Um, the Sun-Times had a story, and they, and they all raised a question about whether Valencia was doing favors uh, in her official capacity for her husband's private business and, the, and for the security company. And interestingly, the response they got was that they didn't get the emails. They got a turn down. Uh, three turndowns, in fact, uh, and uh, uh, the, the third turndown uh, said that, oh, uh, gee, we'd love to give these to you, but it, this would be an, it would be burdensome for us in the office to have to go through all these emails and, and redact them uh, and to take out stuff that you're not entitled to. And, there's, and, it, and it would be very onerous because there are 612 emails. 612 that to her from Valencia that uh, mention in some capacity her husband or this or this company he, he works for. And now that's an awful lot of that's an awful lot of smoke. Uh, Valencia's people have responded. Oh, we think it's based on our in, initial survey that this is a likely just uh, just uh, scheduling kinds of things uh, uh, where they were both invited at the same time and she had the email on her official account. Maybe, maybe not. They also produced some 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 emails that they were able to get from the mayor's office, and then indicate that when Valencia was was Rahm Emanuel's chief lobbyist, as head of the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, that she uh, that she uh, sought specific favors for her her husband and her pastor. For instance, she wanted them invited to a big uh, event that Rahm Emanuel was throwing. Um, and that uh, that uh, she uh, she uh, pulled strings to try to get the. Uh, uh, one of the executives of the security company here, her husband worked for a seat on the library board. So that kind of suggests that maybe there's more of these emails that she's not releasing than, uh, than, uh, uh, than, than this innocent explanation all has to do with scheduling stuff. The fact of the matter is she could clarify this all up tomorrow. If she just released the emails, we can all look out if she hasn't time. Greg makes an important point here when he says there's 612 to 
the average listener, they may sound like a lot, but we uh, make requests where uh, public officials have to wade through thousands of emails, and they can do a lot of that for basic search functions, too. So uh, it is a real question here of whether this is really burdensome uh, as uh, the uh, the official uh, excuse for not responding. I want to move quickly to the SCOTUS decision. In a 6-3 to three vote, justices blocked the Biden administration's vaccine or test mandate for large employers, but in a 5-4 to four vote, the court upheld the vaccine mandate for health care workers. This seems like a win-win. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it, it's, 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 it's actually... It's, it's more of a loss than a win for the Biden administration because the, there's only 10 million health care workers who are covered. And there are 80 million people covered by the rule the Supreme Court tossed out. And the fact of the matter is we're in the middle of this pandemic. And as a nation, we want to have our cake and eat it, too. We want to fight, fight the uh, pandemic and make sure that everybody's safe. But we don't want to do anything about it because our freedom is being impinged upon. Um, it's kind of unfortunate. We shouldn't be this uh, this bad off if uh, if everybody in this country had been vaccinated and, and boosted a long time ago. We wouldn't be again having record hospitalization in this country. But it's with these cultural wars going on, uh, where anything the Democrats propose, the Republicans hate, and vice versa, um, we just can't seem to get off the dime and, and do what needs to be done and end this health crisis. I think it's important also that uh, uh, Justice uh, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. I wrote a pretty stinging dissent in the uh, in the uh, overall opinion regarding large uh, companies. Um, they said that acting outside of its competence and without legal basis, the court, meaning the other six, displaces the judgments of the government officials given the responsibility to respond to workplace health emergencies. So this is one of those where they laid down the gauntlet and um, – it just reinforces the idea that ideology is now so much of a big uh, factor when the Supreme Court is weighing in. I'd like to go over uh, from this week, Chicago newsman Dick Stone passed away. What do you, as his colleagues, feel uh, his legacy leaves behind? Well, first of all, I do want to have send my condolences, I'm sure all of our condolences, to Dick's wife. Uh, Chicago Sun-Times City Hall reporter Fran Smealman. Uh, they were married 38 years, and it was a great love story, which was written in a beautiful obit by my Sun-Times colleague, uh, obituary writer Maureen O'Donnell. Uh, but on his own, Dick was someone I met uh, decades ago in reporting in Chicago. He came up to Radio News and was just known as a consummate uh, reporter, and he he really, in his days when he was working as a reporter, uh, was an important player on the city scene. Well, not only that, he came uh, up through UPI, too, and had been a major uh, correspondent uh, who had actually been one of the youngest, if not the youngest, uh, foreign correspondents for UPI and, and broke some uh, na- uh, international news while he did it. Uh, of course, we all uh, feel... Uh, uh, sorry, I want to send our condolences to to Fran and uh, her son Jason, their son Jason, um, because uh, it's one of those families that uh, really you could you could tell that they loved 
each and every one of them. Everybody loved everybody. Yeah, this this has a, this town has a reputation of uh, of reporters who don't take any prisoners, which is the way it's supposed to be. <clears throat> I think everybody on this call is kind of like that, and Dick has certainly epitomized that. Uh, um, uh, you know, there's we all and we all know how this government operates when we're looking. God knows what it would look like if we weren't looking. Um, and uh, um, my condolences indeed to Franny. Um, uh, Thirty-eight years is a long marriage. I'd like to go back to the city and talk about the ward map, how it's going. There were two hearings this week resulting in zero progress. We have two letters that have been sent out. Uh, Heather, I wanted to ask you, what is the central point of the argument between the Latino Caucus and Rules Committee Chair Alderman Michelle Harris? Well, essentially, the Latino caucus is refusing to budge from its demands that this new ward map based on the 2020 census has at least 15 wards with a majority of Latino voters. And redistricting, like many things in politics, is a zero-sum game. So if there are 15 wards with a majority of Latino voters, there is likely to be one fewer ward with a majority of Black voters. And that would dilute Black political power at City Hall and Alderman Michelle Harris is a member of the Black Caucus, and she has refused to endorse a map that would do that. So as of this week, we are headed for a referendum that would give Chicago voters a chance to uh, choose between at least two maps, provided that another map gets at least 10 votes in support, or in support of it. And the Rules Committee map has 34 votes in favor of it, so that, that, that seems likely. Um, but there was some hope that the new year would bring a new era of, uh, uh, of stability and uh, an inclination to compromise. But if anything, the acrimony has only gotten worse in the new year. And uh, there have been no substantive discussions about uh, how to sort of create a compromise map. And the two sides are as deadlocked as 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 one could be, which is why we've seen this exchange of letters um, that argue over process rather than the substance of the debate. Yeah, I think this is uh, in some ways is a reflection of the, the relatively weak political position that Mayor Lightfoot is in. Uh, I mean, crime has been uh, has been hurting her. Uh, we just came out of the third school strike or school walk, however you want to call it, job action in in, in three years. And normally in this kinds of situations, the mayor would kind of call everybody in, in one room and not catch together and work out a deal. Uh, but uh, that doesn't seem to be happening, and this one has the potential to get really ugly. Pitting uh, uh, Latinos against against blacks is is likely, presumably, uh, uh, seeks reelection uh, next year. Um, uh, you know, we'll we'll find out. But uh, uh, it's there's no sign, as as uh, Heather said, there's no sign this is getting better. The next hearing for the Rules Committee on the Chicago Ward map is next week, correct, Heather? Are we, how, what's the timeline past that? Are we expecting a map? Are they on a deadline? Well, they are. So the next hearing is on January 21st. And much of the argument about that hearing about is whether it should be in person or it should be remote as the previous hearings have been, which shows you again, nobody's talking about the actual issues. Um, but then the hard and fast deadline is May 19th. That is when the ballot for the June 28th primary election, where everybody will vote for you know, either Democratic nominees for governor or Republican nominees for statewide office, um, that the ballot has to be finalized by mid-May. 
So that is the last chance that 41 aldermen could come together and avert a referendum. And I should say that I, I, I did a pretty deep dive into claims by Michelle Harris that this referendum would, co- would cost taxpayers tens of millions of dollars and as much as $40 million. And I found there's just there's no evidence of that. Um, it remains to be seen if whatever map is adopted will be challenged in court. And, of course, that could cost the city money. But we are, are several, several steps away from, from, from that concern at this point. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Greg Hines with Crane's Chicago Business, Heather Cerrone of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Save the date for the next At the Table with Lynn Sweet, the Sun-Times political show on Thursday, January 20th at 6.30 p.m. RSVP online at chicagosuntimes.com and look for Ray Long's book, The House That Madigan Built, out in March. Pre-order available on amazon.com and wherever books are sold. Watch Heather Sharon on Channel 11 at 7 p.m. weekdays. Find Greg Hines at chicagobusiness.com and look for Juice. It's the latest on political news and can be delivered straight to your inbox five days a week. Up next, Lauren Cohn, you're listening to Connected to Chicago on 890 WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. And as the Omicron variant continues to fuel the COVID crisis, there are growing calls for therapeutics. Dr. Michael Bauer is the medical director at Northwestern Medicine Lake Forest Hospital, and he joins me now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Good morning. Should the focus shift more to therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies? Well, right now there is a big shortage of the current monoclonal antibodies. The previous ones we were using have really been found to be ineffective against the current Omicron surge that we're seeing. There is currently one that we are using now, so Trovimab, but it is really in very limited supply right now and gets prioritized um, based on the highest risk individuals. So why is there a short supply? That um, Manufacturing distribution, we have to rely on the companies that make it to really ramp up their supplies and make sure that it gets distributed in a fair and equitable manner. And is this a holdup at the federal government's level? Could they um, have something like Operation Warp Speed, you know, when we had the vaccine, or is it more complicated than that? That I think it's a bit more complicated. I don't know that it's an actual holdup as as opposed to it just being um, a limited supply right now, and they're doing the best they can to distribute it. In the city of Chicago, you know, I believe we've we've received roughly thousands, um, and we need much, much more than that right now, plain, plain and simple. Illinois health officials announced last week that Paxlovid and Molnupiravir are coming soon to local pharmacies. What can you tell us about those drugs to treat COVID-19? Will they be a game changer? Will they help? Well, um, I think they're coming a bit late for the current need right now. Down the road, they will be helpful, but let's look at what they are. They're antivirals. 
um, that you take by mouth, and they are for outpatient. Currently, once again, they're going to be in limited supply and um, get prioritized. Your healthcare provider also has to get um, familiar with whom to prescribe them for, how to prescribe them, and any contraindications. Paxlovid will require taking a total of 30 pills. There's three of them twice a day for five days, and there's quite a few interactions with other medications that you may be taking, particularly those processed by the kidney and liver. That was shown to be the most effective of the two. The Manupiravir requires taking four pills twice a day for five days, a total of 40, and really wasn't shown to be all that effective um, compared to the other antiviral. Well, you make a very good point, and, you know, thank you for doing what you do and all the members on your staff and all the healthcare workers out there that keep us going. And we, we don't know how to change the message to the unvaccinated, and we hope that more therapeutics then come out in the future. But it's been great talking to you, Dr. Michael Bauer. Thank you so much, and I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. 